0: Hey, folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 73. Our last one was on the, uh, the equinox.
1: It was. It was on the no. equinox. Yes.
0: Yes, yes, it was that one. <laughs> I ran it through my head, too. Equinox or solstice? No. Yeah. Uh, on the equinox. We are now solidly into spring, mm-hmm. which I am pleased to say will allow us to revive a Dark Horse tradition, which What's is we that? can now start warning people that winter is coming. <laughs>
1: That's an honorable and yes, long standing tradition. A long standing tradition that we were forced
0: to abandon when winter arrived. I should say, if you are one of our Southern Hemisphere viewers, you may want to hit pause and return to this episode six months from now so it all makes sense.
1: Yes, yes, I would say do that indeed. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about a diversity of things, including the fact that it is our basically our one year anniversary. Here for the evolutionary lens, which is these live streams that we do together. And we're going to spend a little time talking about that at the top of the hour. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the politics behind the origins of SARS CoV 2 and a little bit about the politics of detransitioning and about um, what we can blame the Amazon rainforest for. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. That rainforest. It's about time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And let's see, oh, and um, whether or not saffron can bring you happiness. Yep, yep. I feel like I've missed something there, but uh, that seems like a a good set of things. But first, just announcements. Um, we do a once a month private Q and A for people who join us uh, at my Patreon, and it is always the last Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific for two hours. Uh, that is tomorrow, so um, the questions have already been been posed for this month. But it's a it's a it's it's a lot of fun for us. It's small enough community that we can actually watch and engage the chat as it happens. And we leave those up for patrons afterwards. Um, so I think we're on our—I don't even remember our ninth or tenth at this point, eighth or ninth, maybe—and um, that'll be tomorrow. So going to be
0: awesome. It's always fun. It is. We get to keep an eye on the chat and interact with people. It's uh, it's different than uh, what goes on here. Yeah. As good as this is.
1: Indeed. Okay, so it is uh, March twenty fourth. Three days ago was our one year anniversary. The the one year anniversary of us beginning these live streams. Uh, we did seventy two episodes. And we've been grateful for and honored by your responses, or, you know, most of them, the vast majority of them. There have been a few, that, been a know, few that we weren't grateful for or honored by, to, but
0: that's You yeah. know, it's YouTube. I mean, frankly, that's spectacular only to have a small number of such reactions.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, you know, including all the other sort of media response. But um, why don't you start us off uh, by just telling-
0: How did we tell, get here?
1: Telling, how did we get here? How did here? we get here? Also, why now? <laughs>
0: Oh, no. <laughs> you know things have gotten rough at the point we get to why now. But yeah, yeah so uh, I, just for those of you who have started paying attention to Dark Horse since the beginning of our live streams and may not realize how we ended up here and want to know something about the relationship of the live streams to the other stuff that goes on. What happened was we started, or I should say I started, the Dark Horse podcast as the uh, the idea was, it was part of a long-term Project and I wanted to highlight dark horses. These are people who uh, are difficult to predict in terms of their capacity because they've uh, grown up in some unusual way and they do interesting things. That was the original intent, was to talk to those people. And at the point that uh, COVID descended on the world and forced us to change everything we found ourselves in two predicaments one we couldn't keep going to the place where the dark horse podcast studio was set up the office space that we had in downtown portland and so we had to move here and zach and i built this set here uh in basically an afternoon or an afternoon a weekend of trips back and forth to the hardware store and uh Nailing things to the wall and all of that.
1: Didn't our younger son Toby also help with some of the attic work and the? Oh know?
0: yes. Well, t- yeah. Toby was instrumental in mm-hmm. the wiring of mm-hmm. the set, which is actually uh, surprisingly uh, complex. But in any case, we built up the. Uh, the set, and then tried to figure out what to do. Uh, the ability to interview people in the studio was going to go crashing to zero, and uh, you and I were thrust into this discussion in a way as biologists watching a pandemic unfold, a pandemic that have has obvious evolutionary dimensions. There was a lot to be said, and we were getting this flood of information coming in on what was being discovered about the virus itself, about its epidemiology, uh, its history, and all of that. And so we started doing live streams, you and me. So for those of you who are wondering why this is Brett Weinstein StarCourse podcast, and yet most of the time when you tune in, and in fact all of the times that you tune into the live program, it's obviously symmetrically you and me, so... Why is my name on the door? Well, early on, before we had any idea how long we would be doing live streams or what they would be um, about, you know, at first it was all COVID or almost all, Mm -hmm. um, we had a discussion about this was significantly different from what had been going on on Dark Horse previously. And should we put it on a different channel and come up with a different title or was it temporary and should we leave things as they were? And anyway, we ended up... Uh, deciding to stick with the name that we had and the graphics that we had and just added in the live streams, which for those of you who are wondering why that has happened, that is the answer. And I would say I have some regret over it because uh, obviously the live streams are distinct from the other things. And, you know, it would make sense for it not to be uh, labeled that way. On the other <laughs> hand, uh, I would say um, a rose by any other name is still rice.
1: Mm. I knew you were going to say that. Did did you? (laughs) I
0: did. You know me that well? (laughs) I do. You know, our Spanish-speaking audience is currently laughing out loud. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, And, you know, we have informally sort of branded what we're doing as the evolutionary lens. Like, this is the evolutionary lens with with Brett and Heather, um, a sort of a subspecies of the Dark Horse podcast. And, um, you know, you have... um, re up the frequency again of the one-on-one conversations that you have, which is the the more, exactly as you just said, what you had originally expected to be doing. And frankly, I mean, the last four alone, I mean, I I haven't heard one um, yet that you've done that I felt like, yeah, that kind of fell flat, but If memory serves, the last four in order uh, were Daniel Schmachtenberger, Tristan Harris, Jordan Peterson, and Irshad Manji, and you've got another one ready to deploy in another uh, conversation also next week. Uh, But those four alone are just extraordinary and um, across such a wide array of topics. And, um, you know, although you have not, I think until now, really conveyed publicly what what you had in mind with Dark Horse, I think all four of those people are are uh, may I use Toby's pluralization are darkies, 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 absolutely um, in in their own ways, and that um, you know to to their credit, and um, you know I, I highly recommend all of those conversations as well.
0: Great, yeah, I think the they all um, were really fascinating, and I'm I'm enjoying doing those conversations. Um, I, I'm glad they have sort of uh found a, a, a rhythm that works and I'm looking forward to doing more. I will say it has become easier as everybody is getting effectively a master's degree in Zoom. It is becoming now quite possible to do uh, these things remotely, whereas at the beginning of COVID, it was pretty hit and miss as to whether or not the tech would work um, when we tried to have them. So anyway, yes, uh, I hope the frequency will keep up and uh, the quality of them, I'm very happy with it and I, I hope that keeps going too. But okay, here we are uh, a year in, and we have now both the original Dark Horse stuff uh, up and running at a relatively high rate, and we have the live streams, uh, which have been going on for for a full year now. Um, And uh, I don't know. Where does that take us?
1: Well, I wanted to – we're not going to – we are not going to pretend to do a retrospective, but one one version of some of the diversity of places that we've gone in this last year can be conveyed by just mentioning just the books that... Um, I or you have read excerpts from, Um, you know, this does not include any of the essays or the journal articles, the, you know, peer reviewed scientific literature that we have read from and analyzed of which we've done a tremendous amount. Um, but just, just, just the books. And it provides, I think an interesting cross section of some of where we've been. So, um, I just put them in an order, um, that groups them somewhat and I'll post this either on the show notes or probably the show notes, I guess, if there's, if there's room, um, and definitely, um, definitely on the Patreon, actually. Um, okay, so fitting in with no other category, uh, I read a bit from Turin and Sanchez's Perfumes, The Guide, and then a number of pieces of fiction, including Boccaccio's Decameron, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Heller's Catch-22, Kundra's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, Orwell's 1984, Amato's Dona Flor and Her Two Husbands, Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Seuss's The Zax, Heinlein's A Stranger in a Strange Land, and Abbott's Flatland. So that's, that's a diverse bit of fiction there. Um, then one of my favorite books of all time, now we're into nonfiction, uh, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy's Mother Nature, a truly extraordinary deep dive into, um, into the evolutionary nature of, of motherhood and females in general. Um, John Taylor Gatto's Weapons of Mass Instruction, Dekotar's The Cultural Revolution of People's History from 1962 to 1976. Demick's Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea. Rod uh, Live Not by Lies, uh, ex- an excellent book based, the title was taken from Solzhenitsyn's essay of the same name, Live Not by Lies. Eric Hoffer's The True Believer. Uh, we spent a fair bit of time deconstructing D'Angelo's White Fragility, and somewhat less time with Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, in keeping with, with that, but from a rather different perspective, Pluck Rose and Lindsay's Cynical Theories, and Lukian heights Coddling of the American Mind. And the last three, um, Michael Crawford's The World Beyond Your Head, Sebastian Younger's Tribe, and Thich Nhat Hanh's 2012 book Fear, Essential Wisdom for Getting Through the Storm. So that takes us a lot of places:
0: yeah that's a, that's a very eclectic list, but as so I'm thinking you know you're bringing me back to all of the episodes in which those things arose and uh, that is um, it's a cohesive list too it tells you something about the style of thinking that we have been um, I don't know I don't want to say deploying because you know in part this is sort of a campfire phenomenon itself mm-hmm. and um, and so, anyway, we're building uh, this perspective right here uh, together, and and with the audience. And anyway, I think uh, it's a great list of things. And even if uh, the only packet of information that made it to people was, "Hey, here's a list of things that are worth engaging," mm-hmm. you know, you you could construct a pretty good um, foundation for a worldview out of those those texts. Absolutely. A word I regret now using immediately. Texts. texts yes. yes, it's 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 been abused. It's uh, yeah, mm-hmm. academically abused.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed. <clears throat> okay. Well, that's um, that's maybe all we have to say about the fact of this being our one year anniversary episode. Uh, and then you wanted to segue into talking about the Suez Canal, I think.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, not the Suez Canal itself so much. I mean, although there are things to sure. be said about it, but uh, I, I will say, um, I don't know about you. I'm getting a tremendous amount of correspondence uh, from people that we know mm-hmm. who would like us to comment on the fact that there is a large vessel with the giant letters saying the word evergreen stuck in the Suez Canal. Blocking world trade. Blocking. (laughs) Blocking progress. Blocking progress. And uh, somehow uh, a great many people who follow us and know us um, are eager to hear our take on this, which uh, I think you and I have spent a lot of the last three days avoiding deploying a take on yes. this ship and its um, uh, progress to a point uh, that it has made. So anyway, I think it is now time that we... That we comment on it.
1: Okay, you, you, you do you, man. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to gonna do my best. I will say the people who have been contacting us, I'm beginning to suspect that they suffer from PDSD, post-dramatic situation disorder, oh. in which mm. they would like to see um, disasters and spectacular catastrophes analogized together ad nauseum. Mm. Uh, what well, would
1: make for perhaps a more parsimonious world. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, or at least it, you just know. Just
1: like we got, okay, it's in that category.
0: It's in that category. Yes, mm-hmm. big things called Evergreen that have failed in an amazing way. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, there there are obviously some similarities between what has happened in the Suez Canal and what took place at uh, at Evergreen State College and some differences. You know, here we have uh, a ship that has become wedged in a canal, whereas at the college, um the institution kept getting stuck under bridges. That's you know similar, but not exactly the same. Um, I will say that if the events are in fact really alike, then we can make some predictions about what's coming next. Mm-hmm. We should expect to see students issue a long list of demands then we should expect to see them flee the ship, never to return, and we should expect to see the state of Washington infuse the ship with a large amount of cash to keep it afloat.
1: <laughs> the state of Washington even. Well, yeah. I mean, that's if, you know, if, if history that's what, If history yeah. repeats mm-hmm. itself in mm-hmm. this
0: case, that's, that's what you would expect. Mm-hmm. While um, doing
1: nothing, the state of Washington will infuse it with resources while doing nothing to correct its path and allow it to free oh, the no. canal.
0: They will double down on its current path. They will mm-hmm. – I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly how you do that in this case, but yes, something, something along those lines. But I will say that the whole event um, really can be viewed in a couple of different ways, mm-hmm. right? There's the classical view in which this is very bad for the world to have this ship. I mean, it seems strange that one ship can create such a tangle, but when you realize why the Suez Canal was put there and what journey it avoids, you know, around the, the southern tip of Africa in order to get from, you know, Asia to Europe, for example, uh, wow, one ship really creates a huge amount of uh, trouble. And so, you know, from that classical view, I would say, you know, this is what happens at a canal when there's no entrance exam. Right? Mm. I mean, (laughs) one ship can just bog down. That's ugly man. Is that bad? (laughs) I think so. Okay. (laughs) Uh, How would you rate that joke?
1: How would I rate it? Yeah. Uh, what What's my scale?
0: Three to seventeen.
1: Three to seventeen. Which one is high?
0: Seventeen. Seventeen. Is yeah, high. it's a perfectly straightforward uh, scale.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 giving that a five. All right.
0: Sort of better than I thought it was, <laughs> but, yeah, I'll take five. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so.
1: Also, very, very in keeping with the current uh, theme of how do we analogize things to evergreen to invent a scale that will be meaningless outside of the context in which we are currently discussing things. Uninterpretable. 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 (laughs) Yes.
0: No, that's, uh, yeah, I'm very much of the moment. That's what people say about me. Um, (laughs) No, No, they really don't. Um, but OK, so that's the classical view is that this is very bad, but no. it's not the only way to look at this. There's also a much more modern sort of a Silicon Valley DNC mainstream media view in which this isn't maybe so terrible. Um, you know, the New York Times points out that this ship had it coming, given the historical connection between shipping and slavery.
1: Mm, yeah, it's a really it's a it's
0: it's a classic New York Times point. Um, yeah. <laughs> The ACLU pointed out that this ship has as much right to block the canal as other ships have to transit the canal, which I also thought was pretty insightful. (laughs) (laughs) You're giving me that?
1: Well, I'm just wondering if we're going to get called out for libel.
0: (laughs) No, it's satire. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. For those of you who are not good with satire, this is satire, (laughs) which is why it is not libel.
1: So this is you said. This is the traditional take is it's bad. This so this is, is bad. like this is the anti bad take.
0: You're right. This is the maybe this it's not a, so bad. It's anti bad. Oh, it's anti bad. It's anti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are okay. You are intuiting my direction here. Okay,
1: okay. I'll, not
0: surprisingly, okay. we've been married a long time, so yeah. you know, okay. intuit away. But yeah. um, all right. So Planned Parenthood points out mm. that there's no wrong way to be a ship, <laughs> <laughs> which I wonder about. I, I wonder if they have anyone on staff who knows anything at all about ships. I,
1: I know the answer to
0: that. Do you? No.
1: No, they, they do not. No. All
0: right. No. Yeah. Um. And Ibram X. Kendi has mm. argued that this is a triumph of critical maritime theory over traditional colonial meritic erratic navigation.
1: True dat. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes.
0: And um, <laughs> if we extend his rubric, he didn't say this, of course, but you know the day to day transit of the canal is clearly racist, and therefore this incident can only be—you can fill in the blank at home. Yeah. All right. Um, and you know, I will say, okay, so that's the the more modern take. But even I am forced to admit that this transit was mostly peaceful.
1: Mm, indeed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's not bad. Although. Yes.
1: You know, as as the clock continues to tick and it continues to be jammed up doesn't it become less and less peaceful as it goes on
0: uh if we if we take actually, the entire i would say that the canal is more peaceful than it has perhaps been since when was it built? 18. So this is a
1: very, very clever sleight of hand, exactly in keeping with the kinds of uh, satirical quotations you are you are now employing. Uh, you were talking about the ship being most, but the transit being mostly peaceful, and you have you have swapped the argument as I suggested that the transit actually has become more and more bogged down the longer it sits there, and you have said, "Well, the canal, though, well, the canal has in fact become more peaceful the longer the ship sits there."
0: Need I point out that you are Deploying now discredited styles of logic in true. which one statement follows from the prior statement. You see what I'm saying? I,
1: I do, and I am not going to apologize.
0: You're yet—that's not the, what we. Ultimately, you will. But uh, you we know.
1: Apo- we apologize here. We apologize when we are wrong, and when we have wronged someone. But we do not apologize for imagined fictions over in unicorn space.
0: <laughs> right, unicorn <laughs> space. You've now confused <laughs> every VC who watches us. Yeah. All right. So, all right. That's the situation. We've got the two views of what has happened, and then there's a question about what might be done about it. Okay. There is. And we're going to start. I have an idea for what to do about the. Of course you do. Well, of course I do. I I'm know. a solution guy. I know you are. Yeah. All right. So my my suggestion is that we get a ship full of cabbage and dried.
1: To... <laughs> Sounds good so far. <laughs> Cab- cabbage and dried let's see let me guess it's going to be um yeah no, i know i was just trying to come up with another word that began with "fr". <laughs> but uh, you know fruitcake no it's just fruit. Oh, that would work. cabbage and dried Actually, fruit
0: fruit cake would work too okay, but cab- cabbage and dried fruit
1: solutions i see in large font on your computer cabbage and dried fruit that's all i see though so you're gonna have to fill it in for me
0: that's all you need <laughs> <laughs> you're not helping <laughs> all right um and so I, this I
1: admit that I actually don't
0: know how to help here. The obvious how that would help. Cabbage and dried fruit. Yes, the canal is blocked. <laughs> cabbage, cabbage? Really? Okay. Oh. Okay. <laughs> mm. All right. So
1: <laughs> Okay. I'm with you. <laughs>
0: You're with me though. This is a nightmare. <laughs>
1: No, it's good. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You, you've, you've got more to go. Like, yeah, I do. I can't, I can't I do, free I you here. I can't, so I, can't, that, I
0: can't. That solution of mine, right, mm-hmm. actually does suggest that this this could possibly be. <laughs> now you've got the gills. Yeah. I was just going to point out that at Evergreen, mm. the failures there arguably were also the result of a lack of moral fiber. Mm. See? Mm-hmm. Connection. All right. Good. Now let's move on to uh, people who have maybe more technical expertise and would be better positioned, therefore, to suggest uh, a more useful solution to this problem. Elon Musk has proposed tunneling under the ship. Jeez, I thought you, I thought you were going to laugh at that. You're just trying to resist the giggles, aren't you? Because I think that was pretty good.
1: I No, I'm... I'm... <laughs> no, maybe I don't get it. Like, I, I get go on.
0: <laughs> All right, Elon has a plan to solve traffic in LA, for example, by yeah. T- yeah, yeah. putting tunnels under the blocked streets. Anyway, yeah, I thought and, it was a pretty. Good and
1: show. he he famously had a plan with the miners in uh, no, not the miners, the um, trapped the trapped children, the, the trapped soccer baseball teams. soccer team. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. his plan was actually pretty good. Was it? Yeah. Was he it? Made, he made a little submarine. Uh, but it was not it was, the
1: one that ended up.
0: It wasn't necessary. They got them out. The divers got them out amazingly without harming anybody. Um, That's
1: okay. I, I remember that differently. I thought I thought his plan was uh, discredited and mocked.
0: Oh, he was mocked. I'm not sure why exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. I was okay. sort of glad he was on the case. But, okay. Um, all right. So we got Elon Musk solution, tunnel under. Um, and then... If all else fails, we could treat this disaster like COVID, do nothing useful, and eventually global warming will float the ship up and dislodge it to allow mm. us to get it through the canal.
1: A rising virus floats all ships.
0: Something. Yeah. Yeah. Something in that neighborhood. <laughs> all right. Well, we have avoided having to shut down this episode of Dark Horse live stream over the giggles, which I fear will one day happen, um, but in this case... We almost had it happen, but we're still here.
1: So I, I don't want to be the straight man here, but you were also going to say something about part of why we we're avoiding even engaging this at all is that you spent oh. you spent a long time in the Panama Canal. You spent yes, like nineteen in months fact, in I had the
0: Panama Canal, literally in the Panama Canal, not on an island. All that on an island. island. I swam, yeah. in the canal.
1: and I was with you there for four or five of those months. Yep. So um, and I had a Panama, Panama canal, canal being license the Panama. Yep, go for it.
0: So I had a Panama Canal license, which does not mean that I was licensed to navigate large ships through the canal. In fact, nobody is. In the Panama Canal, the ships are turned over to, uh, I'm trying to remember what they're called, canal pilots, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's, a, there's an elite canal pilots association. You have to have a great deal of expertise. And actually, it does tell us something if we're now in serious mode. This. Well,
1: hold on a second. I actually didn't know this. So the Panama, the Suez Canal, of which I know almost nothing is just just a narrow canal, right? Sea level. Um, whereas the Panama Canal is um, two series of locks, uh, then with basically what used to be um, terra firma. This was the isthmus of Panama that has been flooded. And so now the island on which you spent time, by our Colorado Island, for instance, it used to be an, a dry hilltop. And so you've got Lake Gatun in the middle of these two locks. Um, And you've also got the situation of the Atlantic and the Pacific are actually at different levels. They are at different heights. Sea level is a different level for the Atlantic and the Pacific between the two ends of the Panama Canal. So, unlike the Suez, the Panama Canal, you have to go through locks and then you have to navigate this lake and then you have to go through locks again.
0: Yeah. So, the Panama Canal is fresh water, the Suez Canal will be salt water and tidal. Um, Suez Canal has no locks. the Panama Canal has two sections. You've alluded to Lake Gatun, which is a giant artificial lake that was made by flooding this valley that the Chagres River used to flow through. Um, but it has another section, the Culebra cut, Culebra meaning snake. The snake cut looks like what everybody imagines the Panama Canal will look like, except it's not concrete lined. It's a dirt trench, um, but it's very narrow. Mm-hmm. And in any case, through the entire transit, these ships, you know, we... Uh, folks who drive cars and ride bikes don't intuit how hard it is to navigate these things. These are vessels designed for the open ocean and navigating them in tight quarters is not at all easy because they have so much momentum. Um, and so they have to be effectively pivoted with, uh, with tugboats mm. And the captains have to know exactly, you know, basically their full-time job is captain of large ships in the Panama Canal so that they learn how to do it properly in any way. It's an amazing operation when you actually see it. I can only assume that the Suez Canal has the same issue of navigation. Um, it is, I think, a straight line at least. Um, so
1: apparently it also has a group of pilots trying to do it.
0: That does not surprise me at all because, of course, one schmo who, you know, drinks too much and runs the thing aground obviously can grind a huge fraction of the world's, uh, you know, freight to a halt, um, which has potentially huge impacts on things like prices and, you know, how you predict this, I don't even know. We've got a lot of goods detained that were presumably going to Europe. Um, will goods that have not yet been bogged down in this situation be redirected and create a glut in parts of the world that don't require this canal? Who knows?
1: Yeah, I don't know. But one of the things about you you being on BCI, this uh, Smithsonian-run island in the middle of Lake Katoon, in the middle of the Panama Canal, um, is that from one of the sort of terraces at the field station, um, at night after well, you had an opposite schedule for most people because you were working on bats, but um I, I remember sitting sometimes sort of at dusk looking out over the canal and seeing seeing the the boats. Yep. And it felt like and I'm just making up numbers here, but like one in four, one in five boats said evergreen across the side. Like it's just it's just a massive a shipping company that shipping is on line. like so many of the boats, a substantial fraction minority fraction of the boats that are out
0: there, yeah it's a at least in the Panama Canal. it's a huge yeah. line, and you know I think and this that,
1: and this boat is actually called ever given apparently I think their, yeah. their
0: names are all variations on um a theme, yeah, so you know um when somebody writes the iconic song about this, you know, like the the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, it should be. <laughs> something like, you know, the wedging of the ever-loving, ever-given, evergreen line, something (laughs) or other. Uh, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the confusion here is the ship is part of the evergreen line, but the ship is the ever-given. The tidal issue changes everything here because uh, the buoyancy of the ship.
1: T-I-D-A-L, the tides. Yeah. The tides actually
0: affect the ship. Ah, So my global warming joke would not make any sense at all in the Panama Canal. Right. Right. Um, because it's not tidal and global warming mm-hmm. would have to rise above the locks to even touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in this case, the tides actually do affect it. Now, I will say, knowing nothing about what the right solution is here, I do wonder if we're not going to see them unload this boat, which will be a bizarre operation. Yeah, that's
1: that's what I was thinking early you know, a couple days ago, like, well, yeah. I'm not sure. It's well, gigantic. but it's
0: not easy. Yeah, You know, the, the cranes at the dock are made to lift these containers. Right. And it's a very simple operation from the point of view of everything is where it needs to be. Right. You need to float something here and then put these containers on some ship that's waiting. And the yeah. ships coming, you know, aren't supposed to be, you know, you even think about it this way. You've got ships that are designed to go one direction right? It's not like a train where you Mm -hmm. just turn it around. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you pull them into the canal to take containers off the thing, you can't turn it around to go back out. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe they can pull it out with tugs and it's not, you know, it's all doable. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, that boat needs to be lighter. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. All right. Are we, are we there with respect? I think, I think, we're done with the Suez Canal. We're done For with it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> For now. For now. Barely avoiding a third disaster involving Evergreen and in this case, um, a, uh, unresolvable case of the giggles. Yes, yeah. indeed.
1: Okay. Um, next up, the, uh, former head of the CDC says, Hey, I actually think SARS-CoV-2 came from a lab.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wild. Robert
1: Redfield, former CDC director in this video interview with CNN. Um, we were going to have Zach show a couple minutes of this for people who aren't already aware of it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately we can't hear it while it's showing. So we have to remember what's in this. So Zach, um, you want to show the first 2.0 through 2.05 and then we'll say something and then we'll jump
2: to the next little section.
0: Due to circumstances beyond our control. All right. We're giving it a second.
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, we're apparently giving it a second. So for those listening, this is just dead, dead time. So let us say um, while Zach is working on getting the tech to work.
2: Former director of the CDC is speaking out on when and where he thinks the coronavirus pandemic originated. Here is Dr. Robert Redfield when he sat down with Sanjay Gupta. If I was to guess this virus started transmitting somewhere in September, October in Wuhan. September, October. That's my own view. It's an only opinion. I'm allowed to have opinions now. You know, I am of the point of view that I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this virus pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory, um, you know, escaped. Uh, Other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. It's not unusual for respiratory pathogens that are being worked on in a laboratory to infect a laboratory worker.
1: It is also not unusual for that type of research to be occurring in Wuhan. The city is a widely known center for viral studies in China, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology which has experimented extensively with
0: bat coronaviruses. It is a remarkable conversation I I feel like we're having here because you are the former CDC director and you were the director at the time this was all happening. For the first time, the former CDC director is
1: stating publicly that he believes this pandemic started months earlier than we knew and that it originated not at a wet market, but inside a lab in China.
0: These are two significant things to say, Dr. Redfield.
2: That's not implying any intentionality, you know? It's my opinion, right? But I am a virologist. I have spent my life in virology. I do not believe this somehow came from a bat to a human, and at that moment in time, the virus that came to the human became one of the most infectious viruses that we know in humanity for human-to-human transmission. Normally, when a pathogen goes from a zoonotic to human, it takes a while for it to figure out how to become more and more efficient in human-to-human transmission. I just don't think this makes biological sense. So in the lab, do you think that that process of becoming more efficient was happening? Is that what you were suggesting? Yeah, let's just say I have coronavirus that I'm working on. Most of us in the lab... All right.
1: So uh, for those who were just listening on screen throughout most of that interview uh, with... Uh, former CDC director Redfield, it says, CNN has written, former CDC director says he thinks COVID-19 originated in a Chinese lab but has no evidence.
0: Yeah, I hear this claim a lot. There's Mm -hmm. no evidence for this hypothesis. Well, of course, everybody says theory, which they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's no evidence, which is preposterous. There's 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 a tremendous amount of evidence. What I would say is there is no evidence of a natural origin. There is evidence, it is not direct evidence, of a laboratory origin. And so that is striking. And the idea, I mean, I'm troubled by the journalism that surrounds this. In this mm-hmm. case, I think this, this CNN report um, effectively doesn't go anywhere new. The only news here is that somebody who was in a position to, in a position to know what was being said on the inside has come to this conclusion.
1: Right. Right. And uh, you know we'll link to the whole, to the, this whole little little piece in the show notes. But you then have the the interviewer um, being somewhat dismayed with the CNN people, um, whereas um, he does not appear dismayed here with with Redfield. And maybe now um, before we say anything more, we should jump to um, the next little bit of this, Zach, starting at 3:40, um, that we wanted to show, where we have to 418.
2: Um, yep. Expressing is that there certainly are
0: possibilities, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, of how a virus adapts itself to a efficient spread among humans. You know, one of them is in the lab and one of them, which is the more likely, which most public health officials agree with, is that it likely
2: was below the radar screen spreading in the community in China for several weeks, if not a month or more, which allowed it when it first got recognized clinically to be pretty well adapted.
1: So that was Fauci for those who were only listening rather than watching. And, um, it doesn't look like science. It looks like politics.
0: Yeah, this is clearly politics, and
1: but it's but it's veiled as science. It's veiled as this, you know, the foremost authority that we are supposed to be listening to scientifically on this topic. And um, being being back on his heels um, doesn't feel good. And so it the it, it's sort of more clearly a political response.
0: So I I, I would say. I think it goes one step beyond that that in in essence what we are now watching is many mainstream publications and broadcasts that have taken up a very clear position you know under the false banner follow the science Um, scientific consensus, whatever it is that's being deployed. They have got themselves in a bind because one would expect that if this indeed were of natural origin, evidence for that would emerge and evidence that was inconsistent with the laboratory origin would also emerge and they would find themselves relieved to have taken up that position. Instead, what we're seeing is the opposite Mm -hmm. and they are now figuring out how to live in a new world where this hypothesis that they did not want to survive has um, become unstoppable by virtue of how well it matches um, the evidence in question. So I think what you're watching is a sort of jockeying for position. So Fox News, for example, has done some actually quite credible reporting on this topic. Mm -hmm. And CNN has been on the wrong side of it. That's not to say that we know what happened, but it is to say that um, dismissing the idea of a lab leak has never been reasonable. And
1: any journalistic outfit that has said there is only one possible explanation for the origin of this virus at any point up until now um is not doing good journalism
0: right they're doing something else mm-hmm. and so the question is what are they doing it's is it a business thing right? right is it a are they doing the are they carrying water for somebody with a um an interest in right. where the science goes and so of course, if you're not really paying attention to the lab leak question, if you are If you have been going along with the New York Times and CNN and these other publications, and now suddenly this shows up on CNN, it seems like news. Oh, you know, uh, this former head of CDC is taking this hypothesis seriously. Of course, what he says in that clip isn't anything that hasn't been discussed here. You know, we discussed it on Mar. It has been widely discussed uh, on Twitter, it has been discussed in the Wall Street Journal. Matt Ridley has covered it. So mm-hmm. the point is, there's nothing new here. All he's saying is that he's convinced, and that is interesting because um, it means that then nothing was said behind the scenes that actually tells us this lab leak did not happen. That, I mean, that,
1: but that is new, right? That like this this is new because this is someone with both uh, the the background to understand what is potentially going on. And someone who had access to potentially more information than any of the rest of us have. Um, And, you know, no, he is not laying out all the reasons that he thinks this in this very brief interview clip. We don't know, we don't know all of what he thinks or why he thinks it. Um, the idea that he has no evidence is not true. What we know is that he has not presented the evidence here in this interview, in this little tiny interview. That's all.
0: Well, what he says is the pattern of emergence, that this virus showing up and being very good at transmitting between people immediately with no evidence of it having learned that trick either in people or in an intermediate host is is the evidence. And the point is that, that isn't new. Um, yep. I have, of course, seen lots of people say, "Well, this is a discredited CDC head on the basis of having botched the initial reaction to COVID," um, which is obviously irrelevant. This is not uh, this yep. is not a, a, an accurate challenge. And then we have on the other side we have Fauci, who is also highly placed, arguably um, more expert in viruses and uh, the challenges of pandemics. However, what they don't say here, as far as I know, is that Fauci is compromised having been in the uh, the chain of influence that resulted in the gain-of-function research taking place in spite of very serious objections.
1: Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, right,
0: years ago. But the point is, okay, if Fauci called it wrong, thought gain-of-function research was a great idea. And in fact, I think if you look at his reasoning, assuming that his reasoning is what he said publicly, he wanted to have a very rapid pathway to generating vaccines so that a pandemic couldn't get ahead of you. Right? That's a noble and Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good idea. On the other hand, if that led him to advance gain of function research, which resulted in the lab leak, which then, you know, crashed the world economy and, uh, killed millions of people. Then that's a major error and covering his ass is not valid. We need to know what happened. Um, So there's a lot of levels of what's going on here, but at some level, what you're watching is the mainstream trying to figure out how to pivot to what those of us who have been paying attention to the evidence itself have recognized was uh, a very viable hypothesis and much more viable than the traditional explanation. Um, You know, we've known that for, you know, since March of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, interesting to watch the big players pivot, but it's also frustrating because the big players are in some sense, you know, suddenly people are now going to feel licensed to think about this as a possibility as if it just dawned on the scientific community that it is one, and that's not the case.
1: I'm not, I'm not plagued by that. I mean, that, that will always be how things are. You, you know, you you don't, if a hypothesis is being uh, subverted or not taken seriously for any reason, uh, those few people who insist on talking about it are not going to be recognized by um, by everyone as talking about the important thing um, until something else happens ah, but that's so my the, concern. the fact is Even that there that is a happen. it's I don't know if you know there is a paper trail there are several papers yeah um, and there are also there's also now like a pixel trail. It's like a video trail. You know, there, there are many of us even who haven't written papers on this who have been talking about this. So, um, you know, the fact that this may be the thing, like I'm grateful. I thought I was hoping that, um, was it, was it Ridley's article in the, was it like the New York Post Intelligencer in December of last year? Was that Ridley? I can't remember. Oh, no, Um, no,
0: no. You're talking about, uh, why am I blanking on his name?
1: Oh, Nicholas Baker, Nicholas yeah. Baker. Yeah. 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 Um I was hoping that that might be the thing that right. actually broke this sort of this loose. That there've been a number of these like oh it's getting out, you know, there've been a couple of Wall Street Journal op-eds as you say and um you know any any one of them that manages to get um the the monolithic media representation of anyone who talks about this as a as a you know right-wing conspiracy theorist, I'm in favor of.
0: Well, of course, but I'm deeply troubled by the pattern here a if history is any guide those who talked about this early will not be vindicated by the system right the pretense will be oh they were cranks and then it just happened that this that that science discovered this thing isn't it nifty that we've discovered it rather than actually Mm -hmm. they weren't cranks and you portrayed them as that falsely um so i i'm troubled i'm also troubled that the pattern is a narrative pattern right in other words the truth here is what people are convinced they need to discuss rather than what the evidence says and the problem is yeah. that the evidence as i keep saying the evidence is not conclusive and there's no direct evidence of a lab leak there is lots of evidence that points to a lab leak that should have resulted in absolutely everybody who is capable of interpreting that evidence saying regretfully This is a possibility that Mm -hmm. needs not – you know, what they've effectively said is, sure, formally we need to leave that on the list, but it's very, very unlikely, rather than it is deeply troubling how likely that is and how all of the evidence remains consistent with that hypothesis. So I would much rather see the spectrum of what we discuss move naturally with the evidence and that put us in whatever awkward position it puts us in because we've lost a tremendous amount of time here – fighting a narrative battle over whether responsible people think this way. And even in this set of clips, what Fauci says is nonsense. Yeah, And I have no doubt that he's smart enough to know that what he is saying is nonsense. But his point is, oh, the solution to the problem that Redfield is pointing out, right? A problem that I think Redfield is just reading into what the rest of us have been saying. Mm-hmm. There's something very anomalous about this highly effective virus reaching uh, Wuhan and... <laughs> already being ready to go right in humans right and what fauci says is oh that that logically is not a terrible problem because in fact it was probably circulating much earlier and so the period of time in which it's bumbling along is just one you haven't discovered yet but that is inconsistent with the evidence that we have about the phylogeny of this thing where we appear to have effectively a point source right so somehow the discussion is moving too slowly, and this is progress in one regard, but it's maddening if you've been following the actual evidence.
1: It is moving too slowly. I agree with you about that. I do, I think I disagree with you, or at least um, I'm going to push back against your framing of the problem is that it's narrative, um, both because um, I believe that we can win with narrative rather than continuing to lose with narrative. Um, like I do think that's possible and I'm a fan of narrative as you are too, but I think, you know, I think it is sort of embedded even more deeply in, in how I, how I go about viewing the world. But I also think, um, and maybe it's just because of that bias that I understand about myself. Um, I think it is innate to what humans are and how we do things. And, um, Try, you know, arguing for a non narrative approach to uh, this sort of thing will not work because some people will always be using narrative and if their narrative is at all compelling as somehow apparently this, if you're talking lab leak, your conspiracy theorist narrative has been compelling to many, many, many people. Um, then those people using narrative will beat out those people who don't. And I, I mean, I feel like this is a very analogous argument to, um, having religion is a more adaptive position than not having.
0: Okay. But I am not arguing against the importance of narrative. What I'm arguing is that it is necessary in a scientific milieu that the narrative follows from, and I don't want to say the evidence itself because the evidence itself doesn't speak to a narrative, but the hypothetical deductive method in light of the evidence does point to various possible explanations. And the journalists, I mean, I don't even understand how this is possible. We are overproducing PhDs at an incredible rate because – of things we don't need to talk about, but the university produces PhDs to get its work done cheaply because graduate students are cheap labor. Mm-hmm. So we produce a huge number of people who are never going to get a job in the fields in which they train. That means
1: Including in, in legit fields, including in scientific
0: fields. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's especially true in scientific fields because the work is expensive. You need people who actually understand the science to teach the undergraduates. And so
1: mm, Asterisk, I would say it's especially true in fields that don't have any business existing at all. I would say all of those PhDs are overproduced.
0: Yes, but from the point of view of the university needing the labor and then conspiring to get it by pretending that there are more jobs than there are, inducing people to to work for less than a living wage um, in pursuit of a degree, we produce all of these experts, right? Those people should... Many of them end up in journalism, and frankly, the things that get said in journalistic outlets are just completely unforgivable in light of how much spare expertise there is produced by the system. There's no way that this narrative needs to be driving this story, because you could have people who are, you know, uh, educated enough to get it, tracking this and saying, hey, boss, I hate to tell you this, but the lab leak hypothesis is absolutely viable.
1: Yeah, I guess I I hope I feel like there may be a piece missing in the story you just told. Um and you know maybe it's may, maybe the overproduction of PhDs is really of people who really are skillful and creative think like original thinkers who are able to also assess a whole bunch of technical information. What we have seen is that um a, a Tr- a tremendous number, and I think it's a tremendous majority of PhD programs, at least that we have had access to, do not involve people actually even doing their own research from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. Right? So, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of people ending up with PhDs in sciences who walk into someone else's lab with someone else's grants, <clears throat> who are <clears throat> who are already asking, who already have a research program, and you say, okay, well, you're going to do this part, and yeah, they maybe figure out an experimental design, and maybe they figure out how to do the analysis or whatever. But it's, you know, it's it's actually somewhat rare, for for in some departments, and I don't know how widespread that is, but I think it's pretty widespread, for people who end up with PhDs to actually have even done a complete piece of their own research, um, and that's I mean that's terrible. But that doesn't that does mean if that's true, <clears throat> that you may have a whole lot of people with PhDs who wouldn't actually be able to go do journalism because they wouldn't necessarily be able to see what is true but i but i think what it would do it- Implied in what you said is that it would free them from the perverse incentives that being in a situation where peer review depends on your peers respecting you and you not having um, overturned the status quo by saying, actually, I think that was a lab leak. Like, you know, if outside of academia, there are some perverse incentives that are hidden to most people. And in journalism, I'm sure there are two, but
0: they're going to be different ones. I think that's well said. And this actually, I don't have it queued up here, but what the president said uh, in response to this is indicative of exactly the problem you're pointing to. The president basically said You're talking about Biden, you're talking about now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um he said something words to the effect of he of course misused the word theory something like I have my own theories as to what happened, but I'm going to w- wait until the scientific community resolves this, which is like understandable but wrong six different ways, right? A, that's not how science works. The scientific community is perfectly capable of being entirely wrong, right? The science itself points to an answer and the scientific community can get it wrong. And the point you're making, which I fully agree with, is that the perverse incentives inside of the system make that all too likely. Mm -hmm. So if what Biden means by this is let's wait and see what mainstream virology thinks about this. Mainstream virology has now two big problems. One It allowed work to go on that whether or not it did create this pandemic could have created this pandemic. And then two, it doubled down and doubled down isn't even right. It did it a hundred times. It told us Mm -hmm. this is not viable. The evidence does not support lab leak. Right, And it kept telling us that. And so the point is now, in order to not have to explain why it told us something wasn't possible that clearly is, mm-hmm. it's just continuing to cover. So you can't say that... Science is a process. It's awesome. You should follow it. Yeah, I agree with that much, right? And then it's like, well, how do we know what the process said? Oh, ask the experts in it. Ah, they all have the same conflict of interest. God damn it, right? Wouldn't it be great if a bunch of people who were trained by this system then left the conflict of interest zone and were in a position to comment on it? Right. That would be really useful. And yet instead what we get is journalism that if you understand the basics of what's being described, you're just constantly like, did I read what I, you know, this is insane how low level the errors are.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, you've just described the like, wouldn't it be great if people who know stuff were able to leave the zone with the conflict of interest? And, you know, in some ways, this is what we have done. Yep. Um, but we are also not virologists, not vaccinologists, not public health experts, not epidemiologists. But the like uber generalist framing of evolutionary theory, yep. which um you know you can apply to everything outside of like rocks and quarks, um, allows a person to walk in if they have a bit of a bit of background. <laughs> And are able to look at facts dispassionately and have the humility, and the and demand of themselves that they come back and say when they're wrong that they were wrong. Uh, you can walk into any number of complex systems and say, okay, nope, not my expertise. Haven't published here, but let's see what this means. What's the evolutionary? Wh- what can we predict about what's going to happen evolutionarily based on what information we do know? And you know, that's that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I uh, I want to be. Um, increasingly clear about this. We are not epidemiologists. We are not even molecular biologists. But I don't think evolution is uh, somehow secondary in this story at all.
1: Well, and, and as you have already pointed out, it's exactly the thing that Redfield names. Oh, it's what is,
0: both of them are talking well, about. Well, because
1: Fauci is responding to Redfield. Yep. Um, but they are, they are exactly talking about I don't, you know, basically Redfield saying, which you know, I, I believe you said on Mars. We have both said here on Dark Horse many times, um, a virus that has just made the jump um, from, you know, from another species to humans would take some time to figure out how to go human to human very fast. Yep. And um, this is, you know, that that's it in a nutshell. And there was apparently no time.
0: Right. And so it's, there are explanations that could fit. <laughs> Fauci has landed on one that doesn't, right? So the point is interesting now that at least the English-speaking world is now juggling something central to the COVID story. And what does it hinge on? Wouldn't you know it? It hinges on a question of evolutionary dynamics, right? Right. And of course, this has been true all along. The fundamental questions here are not more molecular than they are evolutionary. They are both molecular and evolutionary Mm -hmm. and epidemiological, right? Right. That's the nature of these stories. And so the question is, what's your road in? Mm -hmm. And if the idea is the virologists are going to pull rank on the evolutionary biologists, well, on what basis are you doing that other than power right that's not science stay
1: in my lane the highway is
0: evolutionary right yeah very very well said the highway is entirely evolutionary whether Mm -hmm. it's understood to be or not yeah all right now are we where you wanted to go on that topic yeah okay um because it connects what we have just discussed connects with one of the things that was on my list and i don't know if it's next on your list
1: i was going to talk about saffron next
0: um is there can I slot in the question of the Amazon?
1: I suppose you wanted to go after after that for for reasons, but um you can you can go for it.
0: Okay. So I, I want to do this because yep. it's relevant. Zach, yep. could you put up the RT um oh boy, can you put that on a screen? I can actually see it. All right. So here we have a story from I think it's a couple of weeks back actually. <laughs> Amazon rainforest now most likely warming Earth's atmosphere, not cooling it, scientists warn. Dun dun. For fuck's
1: sake. Yeah, for (sighs) fuck's sake. All right, can
0: you scroll down a little bit too? I want to see if the. Yeah, and then also on RT, in the middle of this article, pollution cools the planet. Pandemic induced lockdowns raise global temperatures in 2020. Now, that second thing is actually uh, not far fetched. Right, It is true, and it is actually pretty well known and pretty well studied that industrial pollutants do um, block a certain amount of UV radiation and reflect it back into space, basically increasing albedo. And so the shutdown of some fraction of our industrial capacity is capable of doing that. But you start to put these things together. So scroll back up to the uh, the title. And it's painting a picture here. By the way, I'm uh, a little bit tickled. That's a picture of the Amazon, and I believe those yellow trees are going to be Tabebuia flowering, which is uh, a tropical phenomenon. And when these flowers fall to the ground, it's a little bit like um, like uh, fall colors. And
1: yeah, I'm not, not. I don't remember the range of Tabebuia, and that doesn't look like the same yellow as Tabebuia to me. But uh, all I. Right. I I've I'm a big fan us. of that tree, so yes, I, I'm just not going to sign on to that being that tree. All right. Well,
0: we'll see. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, I do think Tababaga gets that south. But anyway, the point here is this article, if you actually read it, and I'm not going to bother going through it, but mm-hmm. I did start to read it to figure out what the hell this was saying because that title doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Um, what the article describes is not that the Amazon is contributing. And, you know, mind you, the title says the Amazon forest is contributing. Mm -hmm. How is the Amazon forest contributing to global warming, according Mm -hmm. to this article? By being cut down and (laughs) burned, okay? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's quite a sleight of hand. It's quite a sleight of hand. It's you know, mm-hmm. I, I I struggle to even figure out what the president
1: destabilizes country by dying.
0: Exactly. <laughs> or uh, you know, Franz Ferdinand triggers world war, right? I mean, you know, it's yeah. it's insane. Now, here's the problem. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't You don't need a bachelor's degree. You just need to have paid attention in high school science to know that the Amazon forest itself probably isn't really capable of contributing one way or the other to global warming by virtue of equilibrium, right? The Amazon rainforest is made out of molecules, those molecules overwhelmingly are the result of photosynthesis that has taken the sun's light and taken CO2 from the atmosphere and it has linked those CO2 molecules together into sugars and into uh, cellulose, which is basically sugar molecule reflected, mm-hmm. right, strings of sugar molecules. That's an amazing process. But the point is a certain amount of the CO2 that might be in the atmosphere is stuck in trees and other plants and animals and everything else in the Amazon. and No shit. If you burn that stuff, it releases it back into the atmosphere, right? Very quickly. If you just cut it down and leave it sitting, it'll do so more slowly. But nonetheless- This was like, this is the observation
1: of the first ecologist.
0: Right. (laughs) This is really basic. It's it's the most basic uh, understanding of what this thing is. Now, the Amazon could over time- pick up some biomass. You know, if you leave the Amazon B, there are processes that could result in it getting heavier and you know, take a little bit of CO2 out of the atmosphere. But ultimately, it's got to stabilize somewhere, right? And at that point, if you cut it down or burn it, yep, you're going to return a bunch of that stuff to the atmosphere. And if, if it's
1: expanding in scope, um, yep. it will be taking up more. And if it is being burned down or, or otherwise receding as... Um, as the forests that, uh, you know, apparently once were in northern Africa, where we now have vast desertification, um, then the opposite will happen.
0: Right. And there are other factors that are not involved in this equilibrium. So can you put the uh, article back up, Zach? So if you look at the Amazon rainforest from above, Mm -hmm. you will notice that it is quite dark. So that has an albedo impact, mm-hmm. that the fact of the Amazon rainforest will capture a certain amount of heat because it's dark, and so it will absorb sun's energy, whereas if it was light, it would reflect it like the poles do. Um, so that's not an equilibrium question, um, but uh, that's not what the article is about.
1: Just, just to be clear, though, with regard to albedo, um, cut down an acre of tropical rainforest, and what tends to be exposed is darker. Um, you tend the, the albedo effect actually goes in the opposite direction at least upon uh, first pass with regard to the cutting that the, the the bare soil um, tends to be dark and I have I did not pull it up well, but I, have an, be, I have an I'd albedo be, chart here somewhere from an old doctor. I think that
0: this is not always the case but in any okay. case my only point is it's not that every effect on uh, global climate of the forest is subject to this equilibrium but the mm-hmm. topic of this article is about carbon and it is about the the title and the article effectively the underlying science appears viable here i can't say it's right or wrong but i can say there's nothing in the science that's being reported that isn't correct but from the point of view of the journalism is absolutely insane and anybody with a basic understanding of equilibrium dynamics and even just the most superficial uh, understanding of what photosynthesis is and what it produces would know that it's not right Right. And yet here it is being broadcast and I saw not a single complaint about it, right? So, you know, to the point about um, for some reason, though we are producing a great many people who at least ostensibly should be leaving the ac- the academy with a great deal of expertise, yep. our journalism does not reflect an excess of expertise. It reflects all of these insane conclusions being spread around as if they make scientific sense and the rest of us uh, behaving as if that's normal.
1: Yeah, an unfortunately true understatement. Our journalism does not reflect an excess of expertise.
0: No, it does not.
1: (laughs) Neither, neither, though, does academia at the moment.
0: Right. Well, or... Expertise doesn't mean what we would like it to mean. It means something else, some kind of technical competence that does not involve apparently the ability to extrapolate. Right, 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 exactly.
1: Okay, Um, can we talk about saffron? Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about saffron. Um, Why are we talking about saffron? I'm not going to tell you why we're talking about saffron at first. I'm going to read you a little bit first, just a paragraph um, from this amazing book um on food and cooking by Harold McGee um, second edition 2004 really if you're at all interested in um, what your ingredients are and how how cooking works and um, and um, various traditions throughout um, throughout the world this is this it's is fair your to book. say
0: I've perused the book a little bit a narrative approach to cooking both at the level of why <clears throat> things transition when you do certain stuff to them and where the ingredients
1: to some degree. I mean, I guess it, it really appeals to both my scientific and my narrative side. So he's got, for instance, here, this is a survey. He's got a survey of temperate spices, followed by a survey of tropical spices, and he spends a page and a half on saffron. I must say, uh, some
0: of the intemperate spices are my favorites.
1: Yeah. You know, they're they're the best, but
0: a little bit angry. Uh, they're a little a little hot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, he actually adds a whole whole page, whole thing on chilies and uh, capsaicin. So, you know, he, he goes chemistry, he goes molecular biology, he goes culinary history, he goes narrative, he goes... Cultural anthropology. It's, it's great. So again, uh, on food and cooking by Harold McGee, just the first paragraph on saffron before we go into why we're talking about saffron. Saffron is the world's most expensive spice, a testament not only to the labor required to produce it, but to its unique ability to impart both an unusual flavor and an intense yellow color to foods. It is a part of the flower of a kind of crocus, crocus sativus, which is probably domesticated in or near Greece during the Bronze Age. The saffron crocus was carried eastward to Kashmir before 500 BCE. In medieval times, the Arabs took it westward to Spain and the crusaders to France and England. The name comes from the Arabic for thread. Today, Iran and Spain are the major producers and exporters. They use saffron in their respective rice dishes, pilaf and paella, the French in their fish stew and bouillabaisse, uh, the French in their French stew, comma, which is called bouillabaisse, and the Italians in risotto Milanese, the Indians in biryanis and milk sweets. So there's a whole lot lot more about the biology and and such of saffron, but um, that's it in a in a nutshell, uh, he says it's probably Greek. Some people think it's Iranian in origin. It's not totally clear. It's several thousand years old. We've been and apparently domesticated for several thousand years, which is r- remarkable. Um, so it's either uh, a human creation entirely, or um, the result of you know through artificial selection, uh, where we were actively putting stuff together, or a discovery um, for reasons that I'll talk about in a, in a little bit um, of what was surely a mutation that wouldn't have persisted um, that we then acted to help propagate and have kind of moved forward by several thousand years. Um, so we've been using it for pigment. Um, it's in some parietal art, some, some wall art um, in um, from, from older humans medicine uh, for various uh, ailments, which is what we're going to talk about here. And of course, spice. Um, although the description of it, um, you know, I, I admit that I think I've never had um, Fresh enough saffron yes. to be so it's so expensive it that very that quickly I've and... never really been able to determine um, a flavor, but uh, it's said to have a hay-like aroma uh, and taste. Which, when said that way, one wonders why it's you know so remarkably coveted in in at least particular parts of the world. Um, so there's this paper. Um, oh, that's unfortunate. Uh, let's see. Hold on, I can pull it up this way. Hopefully this paper, Zachary, in a minute here, you can show um, that just came out in the journal Physiology and Behavior called Impact of Saffron, Sativus Lynn, Supplementation and Resistance Training on Markers Implicated in Depression and Happiness Levels in Untrained Young Males. So I was just pleased enough with that title to end up reading this paper it's written by it's it's a bunch of people um a bunch of researchers out of iran um and one person uh in uh, some France and U.S., but this is um, the the untrained young males being talked about here are Iranian, young Iranian men um, who were, um, and, you know, they started with 36 and it went down to, I think, 28. So they had 14 men in one category and 14 men in another. These are all men who, um, you know, weren't smoking or drinking or engaged in any resistance training, any um, resistance training um, in advance of this. And to half the young men, they um, gave them a... Uh, a series of resistance trainings for I think it was six weeks. And um, after the resistance training every day, they gave them a saffron supplement. And at the same time every day, when they weren't engaged in the resistance training, they gave them a saffron supplement. And to the other, the other half of the men, same exact resistance training, and they gave a placebo um, at the same moment. So the only thing that was different was the saffron, but they were effectively trying to control for the well known phenomenon that resistance training also deals with depression. Mm-hmm. Right, that um, resistance training itself um, is effectively an antidepressant. And so, what you know is there going to be a discernible difference for men who aren't always already engaged in resistance training? Um, if you start them on it, will they get will will they get better? It turns out, yes. Will they get more better if you give if you have them engage in resistance training and take relatively small amounts of saffron? <clears throat> the answer is yes. Um, fascinatingly. And so they looked at a number of metrics here. You can take my screen off sec. Cause this is just, uh, uh, but let me just see what the, the, the things that they looked at that increased were, um, anandamide. Oh, I can't even pronounce this next one. I don't know what it is. T, two uh, arachidonal glycerol, also known as 2AG, serotonin, God damn it! excuse me. Uh, serotonin, dopamine, uh, and beta endorphin all increased. Um, as did in just questionnaires um, uh, reported levels of happiness in the resistance training plus saffron group more than they did in the resistance training without saffron group. Um, I think I have that right. There's a little bit. There was, there are a lot of things they were looking at, so I, I may have put one of those things in their wrong column. But all of those things definitely increased in both groups, uh, or um that the first did in the first group it seemed like you had something to say well before i was just gonna continue. say uh,
0: i have recently come to the conclusion that if you're happy and you know it you're not paying attention but some of those people may just be on saffron
1: mm. yeah yeah I don't, I don't like this formulation you don't if like this formulation if you're happy and you know you're not paying attention well i mean it's it, 2021 it, yeah but it's uh, a temporary it, it, condition to I, be sure i hope so Okay, so um, one of the things that Saffron seems to do, actually, and this is not from this paper, this apparently I did not know. So I just went down the Saffron rabbit hole today. Um, There's a wealth of literature, most of which is not immediately available. You have to ask for it through interlibrary loan and such. Um, So I'm not going to show you any of the other papers. But um, on all of the actual known antidepressant effects of saffron, and it appears to have a very similar actual mechanism to uh, fluoxetine, which is Prozac, if memory serves, um, which is that it inhibits the reuptake of serotonin into synapses.
0: Okay, so this may be where you're headed, Mm -hmm. but the interesting thing here, we have a synthetic molecule that blocks the reuptake of serotonin, Um, for which you could make all of the usual uh, observations about the hazard of not knowing what the consequence of this will be. And then you have thousands of years of use of a natural molecule that does this, in which we are safe to make the assumption that at least in the ancestral circumstance, this was not um, bad for the individuals and that there's reason to think that in fact, it was positive by virtue of the fact that it is not free to cultivate saffron. In fact, it's labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And yet it persisted and spread from one culture to the next. Mm-hmm. So
1: it provides no caloric benefit and it's self-limiting in terms of the amount. So it is it is toxic in large amounts, but it's really hard to get enough saffron in any but right. a modern and incredibly wealthy environment to, to, to hurt yourself right. with it.
0: It colors things yellow, so it has a caloric value, but not Caloric, absolutely. I mean, I think that's worth noting in passing.
1: I approve of that joke. All right, yeah. <laughs> that joke. Okay,
0: <laughs> feel free to borrow that joke. That one has been approved. Yeah, yeah. Um, all so, right.
1: So, so yeah, the part part of part of the places to think about here are exactly what you just said. That um, finding a similar mechanism in. Uh, a molecule that is in a plant that has had been in um, basically co-evolutionary relationship with humans for thousands of years um, is, uh, knowing nothing else, very much likely to be a lot safer than creating, synthesizing in a lab a molecule that has the same mechanism of action, but is also, you know, the additional reason why that might not be as safe Just aside from not knowing what the titration level should, you know ha- how much you should be taking, and all of this um, is, you know, what else is in the saffron? It's it's a it's a complex. It's you know it's pollen from a plant. It's pollen. I
0: think It's yeah, pollen. It's yeah. Pollen, um, pollen and threads. a little uh, what, do, what do you call them?
1: The pistils or stamens? I don't even remember. We're not botanists. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going I wasn't gonna hide behind that, but I probably should. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember what the things on the top of the corn are, but anyway um the threads okay i think they're anthers but anyway go ahead
1: i don't remember where i was going um
0: you were talking about the uh advantage of a natural molecule as compared to the synthetic
1: molecule so there there's so much else also that you're getting when you're eating saffron right it's not just the lab synthesized molecule which is what you were saying as well but one of the pieces of the story that is not that I haven't mentioned yet, and there there are many, but the one that I do want to mention before we move on is that um the crocus species that saffron is, saffron is from is triploid and it cannot reproduce sexually as a result. And it is entirely asexually reproducing, and um basically humans produce it by separating it. anyone who's ever planted bulbs knows um you know sometimes it's bulbs sometimes it's corms There's just a, there's a botanical distinction between the two but they they seem similar to well, the un-
0: in this case it's going to matter okay this is more like uh garlic than it is like an onion and because it's like garlic you can take a what's called a tooth one mm-hmm. of garlic and you can
1: yeah make, I, plant I, a garlic plant. I from it. believe that's right for for this species of crocus. I'm not 100 percent sure. Is why I paused.
0: Well, I think I think it's implied in the fact that it's a corn. It's a corn, not a bulb. Yeah,
1: um, so it's it's dependent on us, which means um, you know it's not. It's not really changing. It's it's benefiting from its association with us, in which we take its uh, take its pollen and, and eat it and paint walls with it and use it medicinally. Um, but it is it is never reproducing sexually. And so there's a question, of course, again of you know where did it originate? Was it a mutation that would have been a complete dead end, but for the lucky discovery by you know presumably a single human several thousand years ago that that was actually you know that when they when they rubbed up against it and then wiped their hands on their mouth they felt better afterwards i mean that seems like an unlikely series of events especially for them to then be like maybe it was the orange stuff on my lips right right? um although it being so highly colored may have made it easier to trace
0: yes it also uh suggests a yeah easier to trace but it also suggests a reason that it might have been introduced into cuisine Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. so just as a colorant right and then it has this other effect yeah
1: absolutely so um in trying to figure out some of what was going on with this with this species that is entirely dependent on humans, I ended up at this really confused website. And so this is my segue to the last thing we're going to talk well, about today. Well, wait,
0: before you segue, though, I want yeah. to make one other point about this, which is there are really two things, at least two things, that make saffron, even if saffron is doing effectively the same thing as SSRIs that are synthetically made are doing, mm-hmm. Um, there are two reasons um, that the natural version is probably uh, much better. One is the one we've already pointed to, that uh, it comes in a context that is that has stood the test of time. But the other thing is it may come in a tradition that titrates it properly. In other words, yes, you are uh, hacking... A physiological system. There are reasons that you might want to hack a physiological system rather than go with your endogenous programming, for example. This won't be the case probably in Iran or Greece, but uh, if you change latitudes, for example, and your serotonin system was Mm. not calibrated to your new situation, you might be able to use saffron to modulate it for, let's say, winter or something like that. Um, But were that the case, you would imagine that it would, you know, the world has not evolved with supermarket-like foods where you can source a strawberry, you know, in in February, mm-hmm. right? The world functions where foods become available at different times. And so traditions have built into them a kind of, uh, you know, a calendar of foods, as it were. Mm-hmm. And you might imagine prediction of the hypothesis that actually this does travel with humans because of its SSRI. Uh, like effect, you might imagine that foods that accompany the part of y- the year that you want to recalibrate would be high in saffron and that other parts of the year uh might be low in it or something like that
1: well, interesting too um actually that um you know seasonal depression is something that afflicts many people, and um that would likely have been the case even pre industrial lights and such and <clears throat> this crocus, unlike most, although like some others, is autumn blooming. Whoa! So this, you know, this is the saffron is becoming available, and you know it doesn't save particularly well unless you've got um, deep freeze. Basically, you know, yeah. it freezes okay, um, and it's you, you can you, you basically heat dry it, <clears throat> and then it preserves a little bit. But it's going to be, it's it's going to be the most abundant and the freshest, exactly as the days are getting darker. And, so this is
0: perfect. Yeah. It blooms at an odd time and it cannot be preserved. Therefore, the prediction of the hypothesis is that it is properly uh, targeted to a uh, a place where physiology is desirably hacked and that you can't screw up because it's very hard to have it at the wrong moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That would be fascinating. Of course, that would require you to know which populations have an ancestral. It sounds like Iran and Greece would be too. But, you know, in order to figure out where the plant picked up that trick, you yeah. know, assuming that that trick is calibrated to a population, which population was it?
1: Exactly. And interesting. Iran and Greece aren't exactly adjacent. You know, interesting right. that those are the two possible source populations.
0: Yeah, but also DRDs. that sort of fits in the story, too, um, because the, the nature. So, to catch people up, because it's non sexual, it doesn't produce a viable seed, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is uh fine in this case because it produces a corm the corm can be broken apart and therefore one plant can produce many plants by planting the corms and supplementing them and so you get many plants but it also makes it highly transportable mm-hmm. right um, that's true, so it may you know you can take the items and by keeping them in root cellar like conditions, they are dormant and you can travel over long mm-hmm. distances and so maybe not so surprising that non adjacent populations both have a very ancient relationship with it because it only takes one person to carry it over a mountain range uh, for it to show up somewhere,
1: yeah, that's good. I like that, okay, so while I was trying to figure out some some of that, I came across um <clears throat> This website, um, which I'm trying to make bigger here, um, which you should pay no attention to at all because it's truly confused and confusing. Um, And I'll just read uh, the bottom half of the second paragraph here. The Crocus sativus is an asexual plant, meaning that this plant does not reproduce asexually. In order to reproduce itself, the Crocus sativus must undergo reproduction with the help of tubers. (laughs) So, you know, I read that and went... There's nothing on the site that could possibly be of value because it's that confused. And of course, I did go looking a little bit more and the site is deeply confused across a lot of things. But um, this, Zach, if I may thank you, um, the fact that that is out there on an official looking site about all the information you ever need to know about saffron struck me as um, another piece of the puzzle as to why we are such a confused people now. And, you know, this to, to this point specifically, this site can't even tell the difference between asexual and sexual reproduction when it's trying to make a point about exactly that thing.
0: Right. That is right? the central
1: issue. It is the discussed. central issue, and it's confused it twice in two sentences. Yeah. And it seemed to me, so this, in thinking about confusion about sex and gender and sexuality, um, we... Are not going to spend a ton of time talking about um, detransitioning right now. So, um, but but there is a there is a new thing that is happening that is worth saying some some things about. Um, I don't like to rely on Twitter as a source, um, but there's a story that's breaking that seems to be almost entirely on Twitter. There are a few just medium articles, um, but to the degree that they're talking about, they're citing the Twitter stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna go to Twitter here. Basically, 60 Minutes, we are told, the long-running CBS, I think, uh, news hour show uh, has been planning a segment on detransitioners, that is, um, people who have transitioned um, to the other sex or gender, depending on who you're talking to, um, and who have decided after some time that it was a mistake and that they're going to detransition back into their natal sex, the sex that they were born as. Um, And uh, as a result of... um, a lot of activist hubbub about this. it seems that uh c b s may be actually rethinking rethinking whether or not to do this uh, and that that I find yet another piece of dangerous evidence that our journalism is being run by narrative and by politics rather than by um you know, by actually trying to discover what's true. So let's just um, show a couple of the, the tweets in question before talking about this. We have um, Jennifer, I, I will show this in just a second, Zach. Jennifer Finney Boylan, who's a trans woman and also a Barnard professor and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times who had 28 pieces in the New York Times in 2020 alone. So this is not an infrequent contributor. Um, first introduced this to the world um, here. Okay. Zachary. Um, Tweet from March 20th. There's going to be a 60 minutes on detransitioners, she writes. They asked me to be a talking head, and I said I prefer not to be part of this story. They said, please? I said, you ought to talk to Tori Peters, or at least someone AFAB, since that's the focus. They said, we'd really like you, Jennifer Phillips. Uh, Finney Boylan, I said I'm honored, but I think this is a terrible idea for a story. Why focus on this small group of outliers when you could focus on the struggles and triumphs of so many other trans folks? So, just stepping out of this for a moment, trans is itself an outlier group, and trans has gotten a ton of press in the last five and ten, five or ten years, like really more than any group of that size um, warrants by the numbers. And so for people in a tiny group of outliers who have been getting much more press than their numbers represent, to be complaining about people within their group, um, who frankly may or may not be outliers, getting any press at all, seems like the, the best spin I can put on it is it's the height of irony.
0: It's the height of irony, and it's also uh, obviously duplicitous. Um, Yes. So that
1: would be a slightly less generous interpretation. uh, Yes,
0: slightly less generous. But the simple fact is the reason that detransitioners are forbidden and that uh, there would be pressure put on 60 Minutes is that the strongest argument for a go slow approach, let us leave children to develop as they will um, and not leap to conclusions, is that not only – do, does dysphoria so regularly clear up on its own, yes. but that many people who do transition decide later it didn't solve the issue that they were hoping it would solve and decide to transition back, at which point you can't fully transition back, right? There are downstream consequences of this. And so yes. – um, You know, obscuring the awkward fact of many people who have thought that they wanted to transition and discover later that they got bad advice or had misunderstood things um, is really, it's going to put people in harm's way. This story needs to be covered because everybody who's thinking of transitioning needs to consider the possibility that it isn't the solution for them.
1: Yes, exactly as, for instance, Abigail Schreier's excellent book needs to be out there and available to people and not be, you know, taken off of the virtual shelves at Amazon. Um Just two more uh, sort of blue check marks on Twitter who are tweeting about this and who who have cultural sway? We have chase strangio um at the you know famous at least in some circles um trans lawyer at a c l u who uh, quote tweets the Boylan tweet thread that I just read at the beginning of saying, this story is deliberately airing at a time of dangerous assaults on trans healthcare and trans lives, while we, as trans people, are harassed and gaslit when we try to advocate for our ability to just live. To just live. I feel like I know who's being gaslit, and it's not Chase Strangio. <laughs>
0: Like, right. Well, that, that that's the core of gaslighting now, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so, you know, at a time of dangerous assaults on trans healthcare and trans lives, that will always be the claim. That will always be the claim. And any group, no matter how you define that group, will always be experiencing something that they should not be experiencing because that is the nature of existence. So there is nothing in here that is falsifiable. And yet, the entire thing is of a tone that seems exactly wrong and actually quite deceitful. So just one more of these. Uh, Here we have someone, um, actually, sorry, Zach, give me my screen back just for a minute um, so I can see this is someone who is the former editor-in-chief of Out Magazine and the former chief commercial officer of Teen Vogue. Uh, Teen Vogue, which seems to be one of the sort of spear points of uh, a lot of this madness. Um, so um, the Twitter account is PF Picardi. Again, quote tweets, the original Boylan tweet thread saying, the media illiteracy around trans folks is nothing short of dangerous. I hope the folks at 60 Minutes know there's a human toll to their irresponsibility. Each and every person affiliated with selecting this narrative for airtime should be held accountable. Held accountable. The idea that there are stories of real people who have experienced real pain and real harm, and their stories should not be told, is a remarkable claim.
0: Yes, and the remarkable claim. In the slightest veiled threat. Holding accountable people for telling stories, like, for example, Jesse Single, who uh, has indeed been uh, falsely portrayed and, you know, uh, what would the term be, demonized online, Mm -hmm. um, who has been uh, quite good about reporting on all sides of the trans issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did want to add one other thing here, which, in the spirit of what we were talking about last week. Uh, regarding Kendi and the idea that there are certain things that are that fit on a card yeah that actually tell the story mm-hmm. right it strikes me that at the heart of the issue of transition and detransition is the hypocrisy of a movement and mind you I'm not talking about trans people you and I draw a distinction trans activists are the ones mm-hmm. who have uh, become so troubling and frightening but If trans rights are human rights, right, if the right to transition is a human right, then surely people who have already transitioned also have the right to transition and have the right to have that story told, right? So my point is, if the only people on earth who don't have the right to transition are people who've already done it, something is off, Mm -hmm. right? And if those who are advocating for trans people are the ones who are ruling out the discussion then they are telling you what they're up to, right? This is a one-way phenomenon from their perspective, right? Yes. And uh, we need to recognize that. And um, we need to frankly stare down the threats because, you know, there is the group of people who have decided that transition is what they need to do. And there is an infinitely large group of people who have yet to make such a decision. Um, And Many of them are children, they are easily yeah. influenced, and they have a right to have normal development unfold before irreversible decisions are made on their behalf.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it's not its not that everything in this landscape is clear cut, right? Um, for those extremely rare people, extremely rare people who really would describe themselves to you, and some of them have described themselves to us as having been born in the wrong body, the earlier they would be allowed to transition, the more likely their, their, their understood and deeply felt brain sex would be, could be come to become in accord with the body that they are then um, allowed to transition into. That is a tiny fraction of, of 1% of humanity, a t- tiny fraction of probably a hundredth of 1%. Um, for the vast majority of people, Regardless of how they view themselves, how comfortable they are in their skin, whether or not they're gay, straight, bi, whatever, the vast majority of people who do not end up feeling that the way that they must live in the world forever after is as the sex that they were not born to, messing with development is permanent and tragic and going to result in the things like infertility, mental health problems and other physical problems like bone density loss. Yeah, and this sexual is, dysfunction. Se- is- and sexual dysfunction. Yes. All and and that's and that's an incomplete list. Yeah. So you it is it is not it is not the right of a tiny 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 number of people to change development for everyone else. And in fact, it's and 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 having children have this thrust on them because they say something in the spirit of childhood where they're exploring identity because that's what childhood is, is should be criminal. It
0: should be criminal. It should be. Um, I would also um, point out that somehow we have been lured into a conversation in which everything downstream of the concept of trans is taken to be sacred. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't make any sense. We Mm -hmm. have said repeatedly that too many cultures have trans as some role, ancient cultures, Mm -hmm. for us to imagine that this is some new invention or that that it is inherently a disorder. However, this is not the same thing as saying pharmaceutical transition and surgical transition is ancient. It isn't. And so to the extent that we are talking about who has surgery available to them, how early in life, when can we disrupt a a developmental process in order to, you know, to ostensibly help you, these are not simple matters, right? And they are very different from the right to live as you would right yes right the ability to be surgically altered as you would is not a human right mm-hmm. right we have not declared it such right there are surgeries you can't go get mm-hmm. right so this is not one of those things and um we need to stop pretending it, it is compassion for people is important and the recognition that trans is something uh real and ancient is important that is very different from pharmaceutical and surgical alteration
1: beautiful exactly right all right. Good. Well, I we will no doubt come back to this topic and its various instantiations. But um uh for now, why don't we why don't we share the thumbnail that we've chosen for this week? Sure. And um and just say that these this is uh in advance of a bike ride that Zachary, our 16-year-old son and producer, took yesterday um out west of Portland on the Banks Fernonia Trail. It was a beautiful day. It's an even more beautiful day here today in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, at least in the Northern hemisphere, although frankly, near the equinox, it should be beautiful pretty much everywhere at the moment. Um, do remember to, to get outside and, you know, make vitamin D while the sun shines and get moving, get your heart rate up and, you know, be, be with the people you love and, uh, and just enjoy what the earth is giving us as opposed to what the media and the laboratories are giving us.
0: Yeah. Go out and smile at someone, right? Have a normal human interaction outside. It's
1: it's harder with the mask, isn't
0: it? Well, as you you pointed out last time, this rubric where you need two of three of the protections means you can be outside and in smiling range without breathing down someone's neck and not wearing a mask. Absolutely. And And that would be wise.
1: Actually, I will say, so Zach and I just did, you know, 20 miles yesterday. And um, I don't think, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we saw anyone on the trail with a mask. Um, I saw a couple but cu- not couple a couple right at the right near the trailhead, maybe
0: I mean throughout, but not too many overall,
1: okay, um, so maybe a few, I don't think anyone on bikes, maybe only the walkers were were wearing masks, and then we went um. We came back through northwest Portland um, to pick up some food, and we had to park a ways away, and I left Zach with the car because the bikes were on the back of it, and I just walked through Slabtown, which is a, just a, a part of northwest Portland, and like I said, it was a beautiful day. It was a Friday evening. The sun was out. There was – you know, we've – there – the – the local government has allowed for a lot more outdoor seating spilling into streets actually than would be normal in times of a non-pandemic. So when the weather is good, there's actually the possibility for people to be uh, to be seeing each other and to actually be being human with one another. Um, and I saw almost no one with a mask out there either on my, you know, what amounted to like an eight block round trip walk just to pick up the food that we had ordered. And it felt so terrific so it felt so human and wonderful and like you know like the portland that we love yep yeah
0: absolutely well i'm glad to see it returning and uh i'm, I'm ready for the warmer weather
1: <laughs> yeah indeed so um with that we are for those of you uh with us on youtube going to take a 15 minute break and then be back with a live q a answering questions from your super chat And if you have any questions about how to do that or anything else, you can send email to darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. Again, consider joining us tomorrow at 11 a.m. on my Patreon for a private two-hour Q&A, where where it is intimate enough that we can actually engage with the chat as it happens. Uh, You will have, before our next live stream, a... um, your first of the month patreon conversation as well um so at higher tier levels uh, brett has two monthly conversations as well at his patreon um yeah we've got a clips channel where there's there's lots of good clips um that our wonderful clips guy is generating and maybe that's it once again yeah be be good to one another and eat good food and get outside
0: we will see you next time or we're in 15 minutes depending be well